I would like to welcome to the stage one of my favourite journalists, Yasmin Alibi Brown. Yasmin, welcome to North Cornwall. Thank you. Aren't you sitting with me? Aren't you sitting with me? No, you're, you're talking to oh us. Oh my God. Okay. <laughs> oh God. That's what you said in your email about three months ago. You're so charming. I thought we'll do it together. Um, <laughs> Can I have that to sew into a sampler? <laughs> Um, hi. Um, thank you. I'm just trying to... Uh, I got very dozy an hour ago, so I've I'm, I'm got proper coffee now. Um, I thought I'd just talk about the book and, and read a few bits from it and then open it up. Um, so the book Exotic England was written um, partly in response to... Um, uh, what, what I felt was happening in England, uh, especially with UKIP and all kinds of things that were disturbing, but also for two other really poignant reasons. One, um, I, re I was in a cemetery where my mother and my father are buried, um, and it's in Brookwood. I don't know if anybody here knows of Brookwood Cemetery. It's in the heart of Surrey kind of in England, real England. And um, I, I was walking through, I still, I can't find my father's um, grave anymore because it's a huge cemetery, but my mother's buried there. And I suddenly realized what an extraordinary place it was, this place in England, which is like a mosaic of the dead. So you've got these plots that have been given to various communities. Um, so there's a, pot a plot for Zoroastrians, there's a plot given to Turkish airmen, there's one now for Serbians who died in the Second World War, and one for, for um, the kind of Muslim community that I come from, which is a, a part of the Shia Muslim branch, but a sect within that, the Ismailis. Um, and we have to be buried there because um, Sunni Muslims, the mainstream Muslims, don't accept us as proper Muslims and therefore won't let our dead be buried in their graveyards, which is astonishing, but here we are. And so I just saw how wonderful England kind of made a space for us. You know, uh, in spite of everything everybody says about this England, um, it's like, you know, when you go into a waiting room, they kind of shuffled up and made a bit of space for us. And I then began to explore the area a bit. And in Woking, there is a mosque, a beautiful, traditional, green-domed mosque, which was built in 1888. It was the first purpose-built mosque um, in Europe after the Moors were banished in Spain, so which is an extraordinary thing. And it was, when you look into the history of it, it, it's quite astonishing. Queen Victoria wanted this to be built because she had so many Muslim servants. She trusted her babies with Muslim male servants. I have pictures of her with all these bearded men holding her <laughs> babies in frocks, you know. And she wanted them to be able to have a place to pray pray. Um, 
there were lots of convert, upper class converts to Islam at the time. So Lord Stanley of Alderley Edge, believe it or not, where the silly footballers' wives live, <laughs> was a convert. There were several <coughs> peers who had converted to Islam and they were all behind this project. And it was partly funded by the Queen of Bhopal in India. But here was this thing that was built in a very traditional style. And I got access to the original drawings. And he realized that the architect was an Englishman, uh, a Mr. Chambers. The builders were all English. And, they, and, and they'd created this extraordinary, very Eastern building. And you look at Mr. Chambers' drawings, they're quite touching actually because it's the mosque, he's drawn the mosque, and then there's a ablution pool, which isn't there, and I don't know if it ever was. And all these men in beards with their feet in there, and you know, a, a kind of very idyllic picture of, of um, Islam as it was thought of then and no longer is, which is both our fault and the way history has gone and, and, and all that. So I just thought, this is a fascinating story about an England nobody talks about and even the English barely know anything about. So the, the sort of walking through the burial ground, the idea came like an email from my mother, uh, who adored uh, being in England, and my father, who was an Anglophile too. Um, but also, then something happened that pushed me on this road. I get a lot of hate mail, a lot, a lot of hate mail. I have a a huge fan club of racists who follow me, <laughs> whatever I do. I don't know whether this is, I should be flattered or frightened, but it is there. And one of them he was a member of the EDL, the English Defence League, and he kept emailing me. He kept emailing me. He would change his email, so I, I, once I blocked him, it would appear as another address. And he would say how awful we are and how England's going to get rid of us and my children are you know, going to be put on boats and we were bastard childrens of the empire. Oh, good. But at the end, he would always say, and you're a coward because you won't have coffee with me. So this went on and on and on. So I said to him, okay, I will have a cup of coffee with you, but I never want to hear from you again. And if you make that Englishman's agreement with me. I will have an hour of coffee time with you. And I did, and he carried on, and this, he was horrible. He was absolutely horrible. Um, quite nicely dressed, smart man. He never told me what he did. Then I said, hours up, I pay for my coffee, you pay for yours, we have an agreement, and you never get in touch with me again. And I had, for some reasons, my wedding bangles on, because when we get married, our mums give us um, gold bangles and I, for some reason I had them on and he grabbed my arm which I was very upset you know I was frightened at that point and he said where are those bracelets from I really like them so I laughed I said look at you even you even you you know with all your dreadful ideas about English England even you cannot resist the lure of the East. And I walked away and I thought this book had to be written, didn't it? Um, and I'm glad I did it because I think 
Although now I look back at it and I thought, oh, was I being too optimistic? Uh, because what's happened since has depressed me a lot. But I do think there is such a story of this country, such a story, and it goes way back, way, way back. And in part, I wanted the English to read it, obviously, but I also wanted young, angry Muslims to read it because they've got fixated on the idea that they hate us. They have hated us since the Crusades, you know, and that's all there is, and they've exploited us and so on. And of course, that's partially true, but only partially. And so I wrote it in a very accessible way because I wanted them to know, and I wanted to, the English to know that we are so interconnected. The East and England are so interconnected and have been for such a long time that actually it makes no sense to talk in this way or to think in this way. And it was a fantastic adventure because once you started looking at it, the amount of material, I mean, the book was twice the size it is now. Because, you, you, you know, once you start looking, it's, it's like a limitless treasure of evidence, of stories, of the love affair, really, um, between the East and England. And I'll give you some examples just so, you know, to, to, to tell you um, how, how it is. And, and so, just, uh, this is just a short list. Um, St. Paul's Cathedral, which my mother always used to say, Oh, it looks just like a mosque. And I'd say, oh, don't be silly, Jenna, it's a <laughs> church. What do I find? That Christopher Wren's son, who wrote a biography of his father, said his father described St. Paul's as um, uh, designed in the Indo-Saracenic style. I had no idea about this. And in fact, there were quite a lot of oligarchs from the Ottoman Empire who came while the thing was being built. And they threw money at the workers because they felt this was a kind of acknowledgement of, of the, 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 the relationship. Um, East Coca, East Coca. Um, um, because people say to me, you know, oh, this is just a London, London, London. It is not just London. East Coca, okay? Um, the poem is obviously written by an American, Anglo-American, Anglo in the sense that he became an an Englishman in, 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 in terms of his sensibility, and he was an immigrant. Um, he was an anglicized immigrant. There's an unexcavated Roman uh, villa in East Coca. Uh, crusaders lie in the churchyard. In 1669, Andrew Elliot, the local vicar, set off for Salem and was part of the witch trials of Salem. But the most extraordinary story is that of another villager, Sea Captain William Dampier, who circumnavigated the world three times, okay? Uh, and in 1709, he rescued a, a castaway called Alexander Selkirk from a desert island. And that story inspired Daniel Defoe's Robinson Crusoe um, and Coleridge as well. There's an old mill there in East Coca, which was made for the Royal Navy when the Royal Navy was, you know, up and about on the seas. So East Coca is exactly the kind of place, the England I'm talking about. 
you know, it is absolutely full of foreign um, influences and comings and goings. So too is Falmouth. I mean, the story of Falmouth is fascinating because of course, you know, the sea, when we're an island nation, it doesn't mean you're looking inwards. It means you're forever looking outwards, just like the Venetians or the Zanzibaris. You can't help but look outwards. You see the sea, you want to go uh, places. So these are, and the Shirley brothers, does anybody here know about, I wish more people knew about the Shirley brothers, S-H-E-R-L-E-Y. They were born um, in the mid, they, they were famous in the mid 1500s, 16th century. They were from Sussex, a small place in Sussex, and their father was a landowner, you know, posh guy. And two of the brothers were fascinated by the East, and they went off to the court of Shah Abbas in Persia, learned the language, trained the Persian army, and eventually became ambassadors for Persia in Europe. And there are these extraordinary portraits of them. And the wives are wearing Persian outfits and the uh, brothers, the two of the brothers, one of the brothers was the, went the other way. He hated the Ottomans. He, you know, was, became very, um, had the crusader mentality, but these two brothers, are famous in Persia to this day. And playwrights here wrote glowing plays about the Shirley brothers um, in, the, in the 1550s, 1560s. They were great heroes of the time. And one of the problems is history has kind of, this history has vanished. Um, and uh, if only our kids were learning more of this, that it, you know, this wasn't all about distance and hatred and religious divide and so on. Um, just other miraculous stories. There's a woman called Sarah Shade, who was a great adventurous, um, you know, couldn't stay put anywhere. So she takes off in um, 1796 on a boat to India on her own as an adventurous. And on the boat, she meets a soldier, marries him. And they arrive in India at a time when there are wars. There were Anglo-French wars, as well as East India Company wars against the, the Maharajas, because the East India Company was ruthless and wanted to take over lands. And Sarah Shade got herself involved in all, many of these adventures. She even, apparently, this is now documented, was attacked by a tiger and saw the tiger off. So she was some woman, really. But then in Mysore, in Tipu Sultan's kingdom, she's arrested and imprisoned. What does she do? She learns the local language and she learns the local cooking. And they're so impressed with her that they let her go. So she arrives back and lives in a small um, flat uh, in Marleybone and starts the first ever Indian takeaway. So she cooks Indian food. So I always say to my Asian friends, it wasn't us who started the first Indian takeaway. It was this English woman, you know? And so what happened was lots of East India company families were coming back and couldn't bear bland food anymore because their tongues had, you know, acquired new tastes. So uh, she started cooking in her home and carriages would arrive in the evening to pay and pick up the food. Um, 
And so there is this whole wealth of connection, which is extraordinary. And I'll just give you a few more um, uh, connections because I think, again, this idea of them and us, I mean, all my life, all my life, I've fought against the idea of them and us um, because it's the most, I think it's the, the most damaging thing that humans have. Um, but there is, for example, um, when I'm doing this research, I come across, in the British Library, I come across a book called Philby of Arabia. So I get the book out and it's written in 76, 1976, I think. And it's the father of Kim Philby. And it's the most amazing story. So Kim's father was called uh, Jack St. John Philby. And he, like Richard Burton and several other Victorians, were brilliant linguists. They could pick up languages just like that. So first he went to India and, and learned several languages and met Kim's mother there, Dora. Marries her, and Kim's named after the Kipling hero. But his heart is in the Middle East. You know, Englishmen in particular have always had this romance with the desert. The, the desert really gets them going. And, um, and I'll tell you, the only person today who has that is Rory Stewart. He's, 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 a, he's of that, that uh, kind of group. So he goes off to the Middle East and um, befriends Ibn Saud, helps to create Saudi Arabia, for which we must blame him forever. <laughs> it's the most evil empire on earth and then becomes a Muslim. But not just a Muslim, a Wahhabi Muslim, which is the Saudi version of hardline Islam. And then writes these books saying, Wahhabi Islam is the future of the world. And, uh, you know, and now you can see why Kim was as screwed as he, up as he was. What a father, and Dora being very English, puts up with all this pretends all is well until, and he comes and goes and gives lectures at the Royal Geographical Society and about his adventures and so on. But it is when, oh, then Ibn Saud gifts him a younger wife and he marries her as, as well and has two children. And it's when he threatens to bring the second wife and the children that Dora cracks because she, this pretense cannot be maintained anymore. But there are these, and Gertrude Bell was another. Gertrude Bell and St. John uh, Philby and uh, Richard Burton were also spies and great imperialists. But that's not, and um, of course, um, uh, I'm going to say Peter O'Toole, who do I mean? Um, <laughs> yes, Lawrence. Um, they, were, they were torn. They were torn between being these great, incredibly devious imperialists but being completely seduced by the East at the same time. So when Gertrude Bell, she learned so many Bedouin languages. She was so loved, although she was an imperialist. And when it, came when it was time for her to leave, she committed suicide because she couldn't bear to leave the East. And if you read some of the writings of, of Lawrence of Arabia, it's heartbreaking. I've got lots of them quoted in here about how he was torn between the two sides of him. 
Um, Richard Burton was another one. I don't know if you ever come to London. The Richard Burton, uh, unfortunately, is known for his sexual adventures, which were many. But his his other parts of his life are are extraordinary. He was the first white man we think there might have been one before, who went on Hajj to Mecca. He even got himself circumcised at that age. Can you imagine how that must have hurt? But he was completely besotted with the um, Islamic civilizations. And he's, he's buried in barns. If you're ever in London, it's the most extraordinary mausoleum because his wife, Isabel, also loved the East, but she was a, quite a hysterical Catholic at the same time, and she had to marry those two. Um, sides of her and the mausoleum which she had built after Richard died for herself and him has is co covered in symbols of Catholicism and, and Islam it's it's quite extraordinary if you go and look at it you think God there was a time there was a time when Islam wasn't considered this deadly enemy um, which it now is and I often tell young Muslims I ask them do you know the Regent's Park Mosque. Who gave you, who, who, who do you think uh, built that mosque? And they'll say Saudi money, which is true. But they don't know that actually Winston Churchill gave that land to Muslims, partly to thank them for the part they played in the two world wars, and partly because uh, their ambassadors abroad, and I think Richard Burton and even Queen Victoria, I'm not sure about the last bit, I've heard this, really wanted a significant place in uh, London where Muslims could pray. Now, this couldn't happen now, but it just shows me that there was a, an amazing time when the the... the and it starts with Elizabeth I. Elizabeth I was very, wanted trade with the um, Ottoman Empire because it was the most powerful empire. And of course, she wanted an ally against Catholicism. So these were political things or economic things. But there was something cultural that bound her to uh, the Ottoman Empire as well. And she used to tell, send her tailors to Istanbul to find out what the fashionable ladies were wearing and then adopting those fashions secretly here. Um, and there's this amazing story which somebody should make into a movie or a TV program. Has anybody here heard of Thomas Dallum? Thomas Dallum uh, was a wonderful craftsman in uh, Elizabeth's time and he could make anything with his hands. And so she commanded him in order to get this trade deal that all the Europeans wanted with the uh, Sultan, um, who was it then? Ahmed, Mehmet, um, to make an organ of such beauty and such surprise, um, and then kind of break it all up again, take the flat pack himself to Istanbul, spend time making it so that people would talk about it. I mean, you know, she knew PR better than anybody else. And then present it to the, to the Sultan. So this is what he did. And the, the boat nearly sank and 
bits got rusted and all that, but he, he did this. He took these parts and put this organ together in Topkapi Gardens. And the whole of Istanbul, you know, was full of gossip and intrigue. What is this? What this? And the Sultan absolutely loved this beautiful object. And he asked Thomas Dallam to stay, and he, was, he took him to his harem and said, just take whichever one you want, take them all, but just stay. And he, and Thomas being a kind of, you know, good working class, honorable uh, family man said, no, thank you, um, your excellency, but I do have to go back home. He came back and he was asked to make another organ for King's College, Cambridge, for the chapel, sorry, for the chapel. And he put together an even more beautiful one now here is the thing, here is the thing. <coughs> Mehmed's son Ahmed was like the Taliban, joyless, hated everything, and he had this organ destroyed. And Cromwell's men here had the one in England destroyed. So it's bloody Puritans that are the problems the world over. I, I reckon if we could get rid of bloody Puritans, wouldn't it be great? Wouldn't it be great? Um, anyway, so the book was written in that spirit that if we could only get to share our histories and know our histories, then perhaps we would celebrate who we are in a much more... Um, I suppose, meaningful way. And the, you know, I do feel very unhappy when false histories are churned out, like, oh, it all started with Windrush came. No, it didn't start when Windrush came. Let me tell you some more. 1578, a panic pamphlet was written in this country by a man called George Best. And it was about all these English women who are taking up with black men. Think about that. It never happened anywhere else in the West. It didn't happen in America. It didn't happen anywhere else in Europe, but it happened in England. That women were, and they were called, uh, the, 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 they were called the Black Nightingales, the first women who took up with escaped black servants, uh, black slaves or black servants. Um, when, you, when you read Priestley's journey through England, it's a wonderful book, and you realize how every time he came to, especially the port towns, they were not just first generation, but second generation of mixed race children whom he describes. He describes them physically, you know, part, I think one child he saw was part Chinese, part Ethiopian. Um, and he even said somewhere that we are at our best when we are mixed. And so over and over again, um, and I was telling somebody this story yesterday, my sister who's severely mentally ill now, um, used to live in Bath, and she used to always tell us, and her illness was just beginning then. So I'm talking now about the 19... 85 onwards and she'd always say she lived near a place called Lansdowne uh, Crescent and she'd always say to me you know there's a there's a Turkish house in Lansdowne Crescent there's a Turkish house in Lansdowne Crescent and we thought this was the beginning of her uh, illness nobody believed her when I'm researching this book 
what do I find? It's true. There is a house in Lansdowne Terrace which belonged to um, uh, William Beckford, who in the 18th century was the richest, ma richest man in England. And he built all these follies everywhere. One was Font Hill was famous because it had Turkish rooms and a Chinese rooms and Egyptian rooms and a whole medley of everything. But in, in Lansdowne Crescent, he built this little mosque-like building in the garden, almost a secret building in the garden. Um, and that's what she was talking about. And it's true, there was a Turkish house in Lansdowne Crescent. Um, the father of Elizabeth Barrett Browning also had a house, a mad house called Hope Place, I think it was called, which was again the same thing. It, uh, and she describes it, you know, the Turkish room and the turrets and the um, strangely exotic architecture and furnishings. And Hope Place burnt down, so, you know, all we have is the, there are drawings of these places. Kew Gardens used to have a miniature Alhambra building and a temple and the um, pagoda. But those two previous buildings now only exist in drawings. Um, and then there are the indescribable in love affairs between Englishmen uh, and uh, the other, which started, as I said, way back in the 1500s. So when Shakespeare wrote, uh, Othello, this was already happening. And in Shakespeare's world, when he began, when Englishness was forming, and I'll end on this point, we can con have conversation. Englishness is just forming. The greatest writer ever already cannot restrict his idea of Englandness within these isles. His imagination flies. And he creates, in my view, the most enchanting and complex Eastern character ever written in literature, whether it's written in, in any country, Cleopatra, right? So the imagination, the English imagination has been so extraordinary and has flown everywhere. And that's why I completely cannot bear the kind of England we seem to be becoming. Thank you. Uh, Yasmin, I'll, I want to kick off. Um, I was I was torn when we invited you whether we asked you to talk about this book or your um, much more rabble rousing book uh, about veiling and. Arguably, veiling is one of the most obvious physical barriers between our, of understanding between us and, and, and Islam. Would you, would you say something about your thoughts on veiling? Well, I wrote, uh, yeah, both those books came out at roughly the same time. Um, so I edit, I edit um, a series of books called Provocations. They're very beautiful, short, little hardbacks, which argue against groupthink against the way people lazily assume things. And there's a wonderful collection of books now. And the very first one was, I wrote a, a book called Refusing the Veil, um, because this is not the Islam I grew up with. This is not the Islam my mother grew up with. Um, it is Wahhabi Islam, which is Saudi. And it is, in my view, a total 
travesty of everything I've ever grown up to believe in. The Quran hardly mentions. There's nothing in the Quran about covering the hair. There's nothing about covering the face. Hijab is used metaphorically. Uh, so it says there is a hijab between believers and non-believers. But also the number of people in the 20s, 30s, 40s and 50s in Iran, in Egypt, in Tunisia, in Algeria, women and men who fought against the oppression and covering up of women. Is, is, uh, I've talked about them in the book. These ridiculous women, some of them are at university, who think that they're making a statement about independence and whatever, have no idea about our history, right? So, for example, there was a man called Qasim Amin who read John Stuart Mill's Liberation of Women, is an Egyptian, and he wrote his own version of the liberation of women as a feminist man in Egypt, just after, I think, five years after the Mill book came out. And in it, he says, if women are not seen, they will never be heard. There was a woman, uh, an Egyptian woman called Huda, Huda something, I've forgotten her surname. Uh, God, it'll come to me. She was a middle-class, upper-middle-class woman married to quite a rich man. He died, and a woman was never happier at the death of a man, because um, she then was rich and free. And she came to Rome to a conference on universal suffrage, uh, suffragette, suffrage, went back um, to Egypt when all women were veiled at the time, girls too, and she came off the train in Cairo and unveiled. And there was a, a man with his teenage daughter, who nobody knows what his name was, and he saw her and he unveiled his own daughter. And that led to a whole movement of unveiling across Egypt. Iran, Iranian, there were magazines in Iran um, from the 1920s. And they were called things like Finding a Voice, um, um, Women's um, um, uh, Rights, number of feminists. And they were interesting magazines because they talked about fashion, they, talked, they kind of mixed cooking, just like our magazines now. And they all campaigned against veiling. And now we are in a period where ignorant women, I mean, the, I, the book, again, started with a, an, a moment, as so many books do. Um, I live opposite a common, and I, I, was, I went out and sat on, the, on a park bench, and I saw this woman who was completely veiled and with a gauze as well this time. And she was pushing a little girl and a little boy was jumping around. And it just got to me that, it just that view of a woman in a common in London, dressed like this. And, and I just went home and I thought, I've got to write about this. And as I started researching the book, I found stretchy pink hijabs in Shepherd's Bush Market for six-month-old babies. And it says Calvin Klein. 
So I don't know which is the biggest sin, really. And so I wrote this book, and it's a, it's, it's a very powerful book, a very powerful rational argument saying, for God's sake, it's not just a barrier between you and your fellow citizens. It's actually taking us back or taking us to a place. And I do this. I'm like a terrible, bothersome old woman now. So I'll stop these women and say, why have you covered your three-year-old? Three why are you dressed your child like this? And they look at me you know, like I'm a crazy old woman. And then they say, I'm training her. Okay? So when people tell me it's a choice, how do you know it's a choice? What is your research base that it's a choice? And if you've trained them, you know, they're telling their children. And I talk as a believer. My, I have my prayer book in my bag. I pray. I fast. I believe. But I do not wish to, my religion to go in this direction. And I just think white liberals sometimes are the enemy by being too kind. You know, you're being too kind. Ask the difficult questions. And I say to them, you're sexualizing your children. Just as a boob tube on a three-year-old is sexualizing that child, you are sexualizing your child. And the things they say to these children, they say if you show your hair, it's like you're showing your pubic hair. That's the kind of brainwashing that's going on. So you can see why they want to kill me too. I mean, I've got enemies on both sides. It's quite interesting, you know, sort of annoying people on both sides. But that's, that's the way it goes, really. Where is this coming from, this immense pressure on these women? I mean, I, I actually live a lot of the time in London too. And I do see these women and these little girls yes. all veiled. And I think, where is the pressure? Is it it's Saudi Arabia, them? our ally. They've had a major, major, major project for the last 10 years. I've been writing about it for 10 years. They want to spread um, Philby's Islam across the world. So they fund the mosques first. Then they make schools. So where I live, and, uh, near where I live, I live in Ealing, where I've lived since 78. We never saw any of this. Do you live there? So it started with the King Fahad School in Acton, yeah? And the three mosques in Acton, which they funded. That's where it started. You can even map it. And very soon, it starts spreading. Leicester was the most open of cities, because most Muslims in Leicester, until very recently, were from East Africa. And we're very open-minded. We, you know, we're very, in, in my mosque, women and men pray together. Nobody covers up. Women lead the prayers. Men lead the prayers. It's, that's how it's always been. So most East African Muslims are very open-minded and, and, and so on. The Saudis moved in 10 years ago and built a mosque. And then they built a school. And I remember I made a film there for Channel 4 about 10 years ago. And I went into a secondary school. And um, it was a state-funded sec secondary school. And all the girls were fully veiled. And I was so appalled by this. So I said to the headmaster, you know, why are they doing this? And they said, it's their wish. So I interviewed them. It's on, it's on camera. I said, so why are you doing this? It's our choice. I said, are you telling me 
28 girls, teenage girls in this class, you individually made the choice to be dressed like black ghosts. You're telling me that? I don't believe you. And our state was funding that school. So Saudi Arabia, our ally, and they haven't stopped. And I don't know when the government, the government and terrorism, if you want to see the roots, all those 9-11 killers were Saudi Arabian. Iraqis died for Saudi Arabian killers. That's where the evil comes from, honestly. How do you see the future? I don't know. I think, I think we're in a very bad place. Not, I think we're getting to a place where populism is taking root in so many countries, which I had great, you know, Turkey was one of my favorite countries, Muslim countries, it was a secular nation where people had faith, but it, it wasn't part of the state. Look at Turkey now. Look at India, is a horrible place to visit now because the Hindu fanatics. Look at Burma or Myanmar. Look at America, look at us. I think the, 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 the populists and tribalism and um, them and usness is making me very frightened and making me very scared. Well, a lot of it is. A lot of it is because a lot of people are so misinformed now. It's the internet, it's, you know, the Twitterers, the people who are completely misguided and easily led. I mean, I, I don't know if you, if you ever get a chance to see this extraordinary play, which has just gone to the West End called Ink. I don't know if any of you have seen it. It's about how Murdoch came in and took over the sun. And I came here after that. I didn't know that the Daily Mirror and the Sun before that were very serious, informative newspapers for the working classes. They were properly informed about what was going on. Murdoch comes in and decides it's going to be naked girls and misinformation. And it's the largest selling newspaper we have. So I think when people are so misinformed and, and the populism, partly I do understand globalization, internationalism are challenging things, you know. Um, but unlike most people on the left, for example, I don't think the Catalan revolution is a great moment for Spain. It's a terrible thing, right? And why progressives and, you know, people in The Guardian think this is a wonderful thing when we don't think it's wonderful for, you know, we, we need people to be, to go beyond their tribes, to go beyond their, their inherited destinies, is shocking to me. So I think we're in for a bad time, but, but, I think people who've been too quiet to now speak up and to, to fight against, you know, I was telling somebody this story, when I came to this country, in 1972, it was a horrible time to come because it was Enoch Powell and the Uganda nations had been, had to arrive en masse 
And of course, nobody talks about the fact, and it is a fact, because the official papers now say so, that America, US, and UK, uh, Israel, and UK put Idi Amin into power. They've never taken responsibility. So when racists say to me, fuck off where you came from, I said, well, I would, except your country put Idi Amin into power, so it's your fault I'm here. Um, anyway, so, the, 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 it just seems to me that we who understand the dangers now have to really take on these forces. And, and, and if we don't, I think the world we kind of painstakingly built together. So then I'm sitting in a park in Oxford. I was doing postgraduate degree. And a man spat at me and told me to F off where I came from. In November last year, I'm on a bus, number nine bus, on High Street, Kensington. And a woman spits at me this time and tells me, she doesn't know who I am, fuck off, Packy. Uh, we don't want you here. And it's like bookends. It shows how we've slid back. Um, and I really wish we had more people. I think there are more good people in this country than those who, and there are a lot of misinformed people. And we need to not let this slide to where it's sliding. And lots of people are complicit. BBC allows Farage on question time 21 times. If they hadn't done that, Hi, sorry, <laughs> interjecting. <laughs> um, firstly, can I just say, I think you're amazing. And I think everyone in this room will agree that the kind of discussion that you're bringing up is, is exactly what should be happening for the future. Um, I, um, I teach design, sportswear design, and we have at the moment a project whereby my students are trying to design surf gear for women surfing in Iran. And it has brought up several to topics, and several topics which I feel that because they are the generation of social media and Facebook, that they are completely misinformed. And it's actually very hard to know what is right and what is wrong. And then when you're speaking today, it's becoming so clear. And I just want to ask, and I know this is probably putting you on the spot, but after this, if we could perhaps talk about you coming to speak to my students, because they sure. are the future generation, and I think they need to be so well informed. Yes, of course. Thank you. <laughs> I think the young are amazing. I think our future lies with the young. Uh, you know, I just feel so sorry that we're betraying them. Yes, mm. absolutely. Thank you. England. It's about England. But I mean, if you're talking about empire, that's British, and a lot of the early explorers, you know, Livingstone, were Scottish. Yeah, I have mentioned the Scottish uh, um, um, uh, deviousness in planting the empire onto the English. I have talked about it in this book. I have. <laughs> and when I talked about the book in Glasgow, they got very cross. Um, and I, because most of them didn't know, for example, and slavery too. You know, slavery built parts of Scotland. And they've kind of pretended for quite a long time. I remember going to the Edinburgh Book Festival several times, and they'd come up and say, you're really wonderful. But you know, 
the English first did it to us and then to you. And I'd say, no, no, you were there. You were there. Mr. McCourt was my teacher and he was horrible, you know. But um, I wanted to write about England because UKIP is largely an English movement. Unfortunately, the Welsh joined in, but we won't go there. Um, but I have talked about the, Engl the, 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 the British, the Scottish, uh, you know, Burns was just about to go to become, in his words, a driver of poor Negroes to the Caribbean. His cousin was a slave owner and just changed his mind because like any writer, his book started selling, not because he had a pang of conscience. So I said in Glasgow, told them this, and they were very angry. I said, go look it up. I'm not making it up. Go look it up. Um, so yes, so I wrote it specifically because of the EDL. And, 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 uh, but of course, it's a larger story. It I mean, is. you're also giving this talk in Cornwall, and a good percentage believes that England the starts. The Sorry. I mean, just as an aside, you're giving this talk in Cornwall and, and a good proportion of Cornish people think that England starts at the River Tamar. Yes, yes. Though I'm informed it's a minority. <laughs> yes, um, as a white liberal, <laughs> you're talking about being afraid to ask the difficult questions. Right, well, I'm in an Arabic department at a university, sort of, an honorary research fellow, not you know, in the department. I also went to a talk the other day in London by Sashi, Sashi Kupar. Tharoor? Sashi Tharoor, sorry, yes. Actually, it's quite difficult because you feel, you know, I'm, I'm posh white liberal, <laughs> Guardian. It's extremely difficult, actually, to uh, even say some of the things you're saying. What does one do? Because I agree with everything you say. But there's a huge disadvantage by being a, a white liberal when you're talking to someone like that, or um, indeed in my department, because you're you're already disadvantaged by being a white liberal. It's really but difficult. But I think you should do it anyway. You know, I get death threats from everybody. Okay, I'll face the death threats then, <laughs> yes. <laughs> I so if mind. I can take that risk, I think you have... Yeah, I mean, but you, you have, have a Muslim background, you see, that's the point, whereas I, I don't. Yeah, but so you ask all those mad Muslims and they'll say she's not a real Muslim. Oh, okay. So I just think you can do it in a certain way, you know, and, and you, you can say, okay, you know, of course I have this background. And a part of me was, you know, a part of my history is of exploitation and so on. But actually, I don't agree with the veil. I think you should be able to say that. And what will they do to you? They can't do worse than they threatened to do to me. So in a way also, you know, I love The Guardian. It's the first place I wrote my article because I'm a self-made writer. Uh, I was really interested in um, listening to older women becoming writers. I always wanted to be a writer. I knew nobody. I was a migrant. You know, it's a very nepotistic world. At 37, I got up one morning and I thought, right, it has to be today. And I wrote a column. And I knew somebody at The Guardian who used to come in. I used to work in adult education till then. And I said, Aidan, can you look at this? And he looked at it and he said, hmm, I think it's rather good. Guardian published it, and that's how the journey started. But I now get really annoyed at the way the Guardian never criticizes anything to do with Muslims, all right? Everybody knows the Guardian's on our side, is anti-racist paper, but it's not helping us if it doesn't look at some of the problems 
not just with Muslim life, with you know, young black men, many of these problems that are destroying us. So I think there's a way, and I think it's just taking that risk and realizing, I mean, the hardest thing of what I, about my life, and I wrote about this a couple of weeks ago because it really got to me for some reason, the Twitter hatred. And I said, you know, it isn't easy. I lost weight, I couldn't sleep because I suddenly began to think, God, do they all hate me this much, you know? But it has to be done. And there are always people who love you. A lot, I think. You're, you're, you're popular, right? <laughs> It's a good question. I think, I, do, I said in the book, I think banning it would, would make martyrs, right? The question was, should they should government ban them, like they're banning them in Austria and a few other places? I think banning them in a liberal society is problematic. But I think what you can do is say, school uniforms are school uniforms. Workplaces have expectations of workloads, you know, these, these notices, you cannot work, walk into a reception with a helmet, you have to show your face. I think those are totally acceptable things. And I think, and if you apply them widely, so you say, you know, uh, the, the, there's a kind of expectation of how you dress at work, there's an expectation of how you, you know, if you go into public services, your face has to be shown. And Jack Straw was right. Jack Straw was a dreadful man, warmonger, everything, but he was right on what he said. And I just think, again, they need courage. I mean, I supported Sarah Champion when she talked about the groomers. And I don't know if how many of you have read the possibly the most dangerous thing I have done in recent years. And in the mail on Sunday, don't all gasp. Um, not this Sunday, but the Sunday before. The mail on Sunday is not Dacre. But Dacre loves me, let me tell you. Dacre wrote me a very nice letter. Um, uh, the, I went and talked to the wives of the groomers who had raped the white girls, which was one of the most frightening things I did because I thought they did this to the girls out there what were they like indoors? I bet they were incapable of understanding uh, consensual sex, and sure enough. But what was also very interesting is these girls, these women were brought as girls from the villages, from one prison to another, and they still don't get what was wrong, you know? So I think there are ways of doing it. And I think that we should go there. I, when I wrote, was it this book? Yes, it was this book. I was in India doing some research and I went to this massive, massive school in um, Delhi, um, girls' school, and not a single headscarf. And it's a Muslim, predominantly Muslim city. So I asked the headmistress, I said, you know, does nobody wear a headscarf? And she looked at me, she said, no, why would they? Not the uniform. I said, uh, great, that's the line to take, it's not the uniform. And I said, did anybody ask? And she said, yes, one family. Where did she, where is, from Blackburn. 
did the um, nasty man that sent the emails stop contacting you? No. no. He kept his word. He oh, did good. keep his word. But I have to end on this story because it was on the train coming here. It's so funny. Well, it wasn't. Yeah, it's quite funny. Um, so I'm sitting there, and this chap gets on one of the stations between um, uh, Exeter and here. I can't remember. I was half. I was asleep, and he sits the, the, on this side, and I'm sitting here. And he said, looks at me straight in the eye, and said, "I'm not eating foreign filthy muck anymore." <laughs> okay. uh, not eating curry and Chinese. I said, "Fine." Uh, what about pizza then? I said, he said, I said foreign muck. I said, it's foreign. <laughs> Pasta? Didn't answer. Tea? <laughs> Coffee? <laughs> Jasmine. Thank you so much. You've been an adornment to the to the last day. Absolutely glorious.